And that, in, that slavery led to very terrible laws for the people of Israel because the people of Israel, the Hebrews who were there, were then being told by Pharaoh that there were laws coming down for which to kill any male-born children, of which Moses was one. But by the grace of God, many male children were, were survived because the midwives who were there didn't have the heart to kill them, number one. And number two... God protected Moses as he put him in a little basket, set him down there, and Pharaoh's daughter picked him up and pretty much raised her, raised him as her own, trained in all the ways of the Egyptians, but he knew who he was. And as a result, when he got older, and knowing that he was a Hebrew, that he was an Israelite, when he found an Egyptian later on in life, and uh, punishing and enslaving and beating on an Israelite, he killed that Egyptian. The next day as he's going out, he sees two of his fellow Israelites talking to one another and arguing with one another, and he tries to break up that argument, and they look at him and they say, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses, being frightened that this was knowledge, that people knew what had happened, that he had killed this Egyptian, made a plan to run away. Pharaoh got wind of it and wanted to kill Moses. Moses ran to the land of Midian. And there he would be. He would get a wife, start having kids, up in that land, taking care of his, father, his father-in-law's sheep. And he would be there for many, many years until his calling. This is what we read. Now, chapters 3 and chapters 4, we're going to get into pretty deeply today. So we're not going to go over the history of that together. But today we're focusing mainly on the calling of Moses in a sermon that's titled, So Many Assurances. Now, maybe you guys didn't know this about my past, but believe it or not, I was trained to help people repel. You had to take training for that so that you could be, you know, one of the people who were training and, and holding on to people while they were up in the mountains dangling from a rope. This was all the way back in uh, 2004, 2005. They offered this training. It was the first time they ever did it at El Porvenir. And because we were doing a high school retreat, I thought, well, maybe I can get this training so that when we come up later on in the year for the high school retreat, we can also do rappelling. So I went up for this training that they had up there. And I want to tell you something. One of the things you may or may not know about me, I am not fond of heights, despite being at a church named by that. Okay? I mean, I, I, if I can climb up mountains. That's not a big deal. But you want me looking over the edge? No, thank you. I, I'm like, I don't want to be anywhere close to the edge. I can see just fine from here. I don't really like planes if you want to know the truth i tolerate planes and trust god a lot okay given the choice i wouldn't do this i wasn't going to do the repelling for me i was doing the repelling for other people so i'm like i could train and we can do all this well one of the things on the training was that if you're going to train on it you're going to do it so you can experience it yourself i'm not sure i signed up for that and so one of the things they had these assurances, and there are many of them that, that they did, and many of them I've forgotten. We're talking, you know, nearly 20 years since I took this training. But 
Some of the basics I remember. One is they talked about the rope that they have you on. This rope will hold between one and two tons. So none of you guys are big enough that you won't, you're not going to cause that rope to snap, right? Even though that rope is probably about an inch or maybe two at the most thick, right? And yet, how many of us fear being held by something so small? But one of the things they talked about was like, you need to know that that rope is going to hold you. Not only that, the little pulley system that they create in this repelling thing, they have somebody down on what's called belay. They stand down at the bottom before you're repelling to, and they're holding on. And what they can do is at any moment's notice, if you feel out, out of sorts, you can say on belay, and they literally will just move back a step, and you will not move. You, you cannot move. You cannot fall any further. If you look like you're out of control, all they have to do is step back a step. And to display how secure you were, they took the person who weighed the least amount and said, you're going to be on belay because we want you to know that no matter how small you are, it doesn't matter, there is enough torque on this that if you step back at this 90-pound girl is who they told. And she just stepped back, didn't matter who was on the line, no problem holding them. On top of that, if you have ever repelled before, you shimmy yourself down. You have one hand up and you have one hand down. The one hand behind you is kind of your break. If you feed the rope through that area, you can go down. And if you want to stop, you simply just stop your hand right there and you're not moving. You're stuck in place. So the chances of things going awry from you being on this repelling thing is very, very, very slim, right? There's really not much of a chance. You're going to get more nicked up by the rocks that you're not paying attention to right there than you are from like falling like a sack of potatoes. And yet at the same time, it's hard to get over that, that fear. If any of you, how many of you are like me? Like fear of heights, like <laughs> six foot ladders about it for me, right? Don't even want to get on my roof, okay? So the idea of getting up on top of this place and it was just a 60 foot rock. I say just a 60 foot rock, right? So you guys are like, that's, that's a six, seven story building right there. No, that's not just a 60 foot rock, but it was just a 60 foot rock. And from the bottom, it didn't look all that impressive. You know, we were looking down from the bottom like, oh, that's not too bad. And then we got to the top. And at the top, we were over the treetops. And I promise you, that 60-foot drop looked like 200 feet. And I was like, okay. (sighs) How am I going to get over this? Because they tell you, you have to get in this laying back, sitting position, right? And then start going down. And it takes a while to get over yourself. As a matter of fact, this is me a number of years later when they were doing it not off the 60-foot boulder, but off of Sunrise, where it was a 200-foot drop. And so you do, and you see, and you get past this point right here. This is the point of no return. Sincerely, it really is. You get to a point where it, you the only way that you're coming off of this is you going down. You're not coming back up again. And they will talk you through it. And the hardest part through all of this is just getting over that edge, that curve. You just don't want to fall. Even though you've been given every assurance 
the rope's going to hold you. You're not in danger of falling like a sack of potatoes like you think you are. Because you do. You, you're, I'm just sweating. I remember the first time doing it, it took me five minutes to just go over that corner. And then afterwards, I, I went shimmy down it, no problem whatsoever. But getting over it mean, needed every assurance, right? I had to get over that fear to be more assured of my rope, to be more assured of the fact that I had control, to be more assured of the fact that there was a person in belay that was paying attention to things that were going on and I was in no real danger at all, despite the fact that I'm dangling off the edge of this cliff. This, believe it or not, has a lot to do with what we're talking about with Moses today. So, Moses has been in his father-in-law's service for some time now, and God is about to call him to something that is an adventure above beyond any adventure he ever thought he was going to be on. And so let's take a look at what happens with Moses And see how God has so many assurances both for him and for us. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to a far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. So we see the account of the burning bush. This bush out in the 
desert that is not consumed. And so Moses goes to see the site and God reveals himself to him. It says, Moses, I have heard the cry of my people under their slave drivers. And so unto Pharaoh, I am sending you. How would you feel under that assignment? A little bit overwhelmed, wouldn't you? Remember how we talked about last week that the Israelite people, they're, they're not a people who are used to being a nation. There are people used to being enslaved. They've been enslaved for near 400 years at this point. This is what they've known, is what everybody else has told them to do. Moses isn't just being led by God to lead them out of Israel. He's being led by God to lead a people when they don't know how to lead them. It's a scary thing. It's why Moses like, who am I? Who am I that I should lead these people? And in this first encounter that we're looking at in this, this passage in chapter 3, God gives Moses three assurances. First one is this, probably the most important one. We find out in verse 12 where he says this, I will be with you. I will be with you. Moses, you're not doing this alone. I will be with you. I'm not calling you to go off and confront Pharaoh in your own strength. You ain't got it. I will be with you. It's the first assurance that he gives him. Second assurance that he gives him is this. At the second part of the same verse, it says, And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Number one, I am with you. Number two, you will succeed. When you bring the people of God out, you will worship on this mountain. Right where we're speaking right now, you're going to bring the people of Israel. This is how you're going to know that I have sent you. Isn't that pretty cool? If you knew you had a 100% chance of success before you ever started, even the most intimidating task, wouldn't that make things so much easier for you? You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? And the third thing is Moses asks him, you know, what's your name? If they, if they ask, who has sent me, what, what should I say your name is? Who has sent me? I am that I am. He uses the name Yahweh. I am that I am. When they ask who has sent you, say, I am has sent you. Yahweh has sent you. This is my name that, is, that, you are to, that I am to be known by for generation after generation. I am the Lord. This is who they're talking about. And it's different than how he appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So it's a different name that he's sharing with Moses by which the people would know God. These are the three initial assurances God gives. I am with you. You're going to succeed and you're going to worship me on this mountain. And I'm going to tell you my name. Like I said, you and I, 100% chance of success, we're jumping in, right? I mean, it's almost like me on, on that whole 
idea of repelling, right? The chances of me falling like a sack of potatoes were like .0001. And probably even less than that, actually. And here I was trying to go down the mountain, holding on. And that five minutes felt like 20 minutes trying to get up the courage to go down. Even though I knew I had 100% or pretty much 100% chance of success getting down that mountain without dying. I'm here sweating things out. Those three things ought to have been enough for Moses, but it wasn't. It was just like me on repelling. He needed more assurances. He's already been given three So we go to chapter 4, and Moses picks up this conversation. This is what he says, and Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. And the Lord said, Throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned, it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And then then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute or gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and teach you what to say. But Moses said, O Lord, please send someone else to do it. And the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, What about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help you both speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if you were he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hand so that you can perform miraculous signs with it. So we have these first three assurances, right? And of course, after that, These three assurances are that God is with them, that he's going to succeed and bring the people of Israel back to that place, and that he gave them his name. And of course, these are kind of, as Moses points out, well, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe that God has has sent me there? Because these are just words. And God, in his graciousness, gives three more assurances. He tells him, take your staff and throw it down. It turns into a snake. Um, That's going to get somebody's attention. I mean, Moses is running from his staff now until God tells him, grab the tail of that snake and pick it back up. It becomes a staff again. He says, put your hand inside your cloak. He brings it out and it's leprous. 
and diseased. And he puts it back in and it becomes whole again. The third one, God only tells him what to do. He doesn't show him the third one. He says, if those two don't work, go take water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, it will become his blood. But you know what? If God has already turned my stick into a snake and my hand has become leprous and been clean again, I'm pretty sure that third one's going to happen. How about you? So now we have six assurances by God in this Small chapter, these small two chapters, this encounter at the bush. You would think Moses would be like, yeah, man, I'm ready. Did you see that? I threw that thing down, it became a snake. I was running from it. I make you run from it. Like, wow. You would think with these assurances, he would be ready and raring to go. He immediately thinks of another excuse. Oh, God, I, I'm sorry, God. I'm not a, a very goodish speaker. I don't speak that goodish. Other people are much more gooder than I am. Can you get gooder people than me to speak? And we start to see, I don't want to say the impatience of God, but we see that God is wearing thin on these excuses. And he said, who made man's mouth? Did, did I not make the mouth of man to do these things? Don't you think I can make you speak goodish? But here your brother Aaron is coming. He's like, please let somebody else do it. Just comes right out and say it. Despite all of these assurances, Moses is ready to give up on it because it is so overwhelming what God has asked him to do. And I sympathize with that. I think you do too, believe it or not. I think we sympathize with Moses. This is a big task. Even with a 100% success ratio, it's not making it easy. It's a hard task that's going to take a great amount of faith for him to complete it and he recognizes how hard it is. I'm going to have to go to Pharaoh and I'm going to have to talk to him and I don't speak well. Get somebody else, anybody else. And we see God, one after another, just take these excuses away but you know what he doesn't take away is his calling. I've chosen you. You are the deliverer. You are delivering these people. And though Aaron might be your mouthpiece, you're still going. Take your staff and go. Wow. I think it's important to understand that the moment that God had called Moses, it was already the point of no return. You know, me having to get back on that rappelling and get past that that sitting position and start to go down, that's the point of no return. They can't bring you back up. You are stuck going down. You have to go down. At the moment of the calling of Moses, he was going to do this job for God. He's not getting out of it. He knows how hard it is. 
And though he has every assurance of his success, and he's shown every assurance of God's presence among his people with miracles that are going to happen that he is able to present to the elders of Israel to show that God really has done this. Because who can turn a stick into a snake but God? Who can turn a hand leprous or heal it like that? But God, who can turn water to blood, much less water to wine, right? Only God can do these things. So he has a stamp of approval. He's given the name of God. He's given everything that he needs for success. And he still doesn't want to do it. And is kind of really called out by God saying, no, this is what I've called you for. I prepared you for this. And finally, with reluctance... And the call of God, he accepts that calling and goes forth. And watch what happens. Because we go to the end of chapter 4. It's, just, it's real interesting what happens here at the end of chapter 4. Starting in verse 27, it says, The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. And Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. And he also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped Sometimes I think that you and I are worried that a reluctant obedience won't end in worship. That's exactly what happened here. A reluctant obedience won't necessarily end in changed lives. I did what you wanted me to do, God, but at the same time, man, you had to pull my teeth just to get me out to that place. Any of you been like that? Like, I don't want to do this, God. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Okay, I'll do it. Anybody like that? Anybody? And then you do it. And God blesses it. Anyway, despite your reluctance, It's really interesting because you and I, as believers in Christ, we have been given a calling just as important as Moses, if not more. You know, we have been given a commission by God to go out and make disciples. As a matter of fact, if you ever want to understand what the Great Commission really looks like, you read the book of Acts because where the Gospels end in the Great Commission, they end with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that leads them, here is your mission, and that's kind of how it ends, right? With Jesus going up into heaven, Acts begins with that. And what you read through Acts is how the disciples understood the fulfillment of the Great Commission was to be. So if you want to know how to fulfill the Great Commission, you read Acts. You really do. Because this is how Acts starts in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And what we're going to find as we look at the commissioning that we have by God, we also have many assurances by God concerning the commission that he's given us, the calling that he gives every believer. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you, this is Jesus, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
This is God calling you and me and saying, look, when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us to do the will of God comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. Matthew 28, probably the most famous of the great commissions, says it this way. Jesus Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And through these two great commissions, we see three great assurances. Jesus shares with his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. That is a huge assurance for me and you. To know that Jesus, above all things, all power, all authority, is his. Nobody else's, it's his. That's a huge assurance for us. And then he gives us the exact same assurance at the end in verse 20. And surely I am with you always. That's exactly what God said to Moses. I am with you. I have a task for you. I am with you. Jesus says, make disciples. I have all authority. I am with you. And not just that, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you can be witnesses. So not only is all authority mine, not only am I with you, you're going to receive power, empowerment by the Holy Spirit to be able to do what God has called you to do, to be your witnesses. Because you know what? Just like Moses in his own strength can't do it, neither can we in ours. It's too big. And yet, when we look at these commissions, This isn't the great suggestion. This is a great commission. We are called to go out. This isn't a question, do you want to do this? This is go. Therefore, go and make disciples. It's exactly what he told Moses. Go. I am with you. Therefore, go. Now go. This is what you and I are supposed to do. We're supposed to make disciples. We're supposed to be baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you know what we do? Knowing we have all of those assurances, being convinced in our minds and hearts that Jesus, by the name of Jesus, and no other name by, by which men must be saved. By the way, that's what Peter and John said after they were persecuted. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. No other name under heaven by which men must be saved. The name of Jesus. You and I are commissioned to share that with the world around us. That people might know Christ. And you know what we do? I don't know enough. I don't speak goodish. I'm not all that Christianese. I, I don't know if I could share with them because, you know, I, I have faltering lips and I, I can't speak well. I, I get nervous around. Just, God, just send somebody else.
sorry. God's telling you and me to go. You and me to go to share Christ with the world around us. And it's not an optional thing for a believer in Jesus Christ. But he'll be with us. All power and authority is his. The Holy Spirit will come upon us and empower us to do exactly what he's called us to do. We just need to be obedient. See, in Romans chapter 10, there's some very familiar verses. And oftentimes in Romans 10, these verses kind of get separated out. It's called context, right? We read just part of it. We don't read the whole thing. and We take things unwittingly out of context. And oftentimes when we read, we will affirm in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, these words, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We like those verses, don't we? I mean, they're true. First of all, they're true. All of that is true. But we oftentimes quote only these verses right here. Because we want the assurance that people can know that Jesus is Lord. And if Paul had just stopped writing according to the Holy Spirit right there, we we could say, okay, that's what he's getting at. But verses 14 and 15 follow 13. That's how that works. For those of you learning how to do math-ish. So... Verses 14 and 15 says this. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? See, these questions, this this reality of Jesus being Lord begs these questions that somebody has to go out and tell them. This is what Paul is getting at. It's not just about that people confessing Jesus is Lord and that we believe that God raised him from the dead. They will be saved. That is a true reality for any single person. It truly is good news. It's the best news we could give anybody. But if no one shares, how do they get that news? And I find that when we look at the life of Jesus, he did the same things to his disciples Matthew chapter 9, at the very end of the chapter, Jesus is looking over the crowds, how they're harassed like a sheep without a shepherd. And he looks over and he says, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers. But again, context is everything. The next verse is, Chapter 10 and verse 1, and we look and we read that account, and what does Jesus do? He sets aside the 12 and he sends them out. These weren't rhetorical questions or rhetorical prayers. They had answers, and the answers were those who believe are sent out to tell the world about Jesus. And that's why the Great Commission for you 
and for me. In Christ is not an option. It's a command. But notice how Romans 10, 15 ends though. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. See, God has called you and God has called me to fulfill this great commission. God has called you and me to tell others about Jesus. God has called you and me to baptize. You know what I loved a couple weeks ago? Is Philip is up there being baptized and Trinidad's baptizing him. Wasn't that awesome? He's fulfilling the great commission. Every single one of us should desire to be up in that baptismal because we are fulfilling the great commission, baptizing someone in the Lord because we have shared with them Jesus Christ. And when we ask them yeah, that important question, who do you want to baptize? They're going to say, you know what? I want the one to baptize me to be the one who brought me the good news. How beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. See, that's God's desire for you. That's God's desire for me. And he has all authority at his disposal. He is going to be with us. We're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we can do these things. But we, like Moses, have to step into it. And here's the result. That if you and I take up this calling and obey in obedience, guess what it it results in? Praise and worship to God. That's what happened with the people of Israel people of Israel heard. They were encouraged. It said they believed and then they worshipped. And isn't that what we're wanting to do when we share Christ with others? That they might believe so they might worship him. But how are they going to know? Unless somebody goes and tells them. And God has told every single one of us to go it's not just the pastor's job it's every one of us but we have so many assurances so you saw those pictures earlier about me going down sunrise which is my favorite hike in all the world it really is but that cliffside is 200 feet as compared to the 60-foot one I had done before. And even though it was probably a dozen or more years later when I finally got up on the side of that mountain and went down, it was so much easier to do. You know why? Because I had repelled time and time again that when it was a larger cliff, I was more and more secure in the assurances that was given to me and the rope and the person on belay, and, and me being able to stop myself if things got a little cattywampus. I just wanted to say cattywampus. Those assurances grew because I had walked in the truth of those things being my security. The more you and I believe that Jesus truly has all authority, the more we believe that Jesus really is with us. The more we believe that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the commands of God through the great commission that he has given each and every one of us, the easier it will be the second time and the third time we talk to somebody about Jesus. And it results ultimately in praise and honor and glory in Jesus Christ and worship to him. And you know what? 
Man, what an adventure. Let's not miss out because we're scared. Let's not miss out because we don't think we're good enough for doing it. Let's not miss out with all of these excuses. Let's you and me walk in obedience and see the praise and glory that comes to God as a result of it. Because that is the great commission. And every one of us are called to do it. Would you stand with me? Close your eyes, bow your heads for just a moment. How many of you have, just between you and God, given excuses to him as to why you can't reach out? Somebody else's job. I'm not good enough. I'm not confident enough need to be reminded today that it's a commission not a suggestion you and I are called to reach out with the grace of Jesus Christ because how will they know unless someone is sent how can they hear unless somebody tells them may we be the blessing that gives good news to those who need to hear You know, these next five years, our whole focus is to reach out with the love of Jesus Christ to the world around us who needs Jesus. He's using you. Every one of you in this room, he's using you to do that. Not programs, not anything else, you. Reaching out, you. But he's with you. All authority is his. He's going to empower you to do it this day, how many of you are going to make a commitment to him to walk in that obedience? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time, this reminder of this great adventure, not just that Moses is on, but how it mirrors our adventure that you are giving us, Lord. This commission to change the lives of others, that they may move from death to life because of Jesus Christ and what you've done. But you've asked us to be your witnesses. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, you've asked us to make disciples, knowing that you have all authority and that you're going to be with us. God, help us to walk in that obedience because we want to see lives changed around us. I pray for mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and co-workers, oh God, who need to know Jesus, who are all around us, that we look at every single day. Oh God, how will they know unless we are sent out? So God, whether we're kicking our feet, screaming, Lord, we we pray for an obedient heart that may result in praise and worship to you by those who are changed because of Jesus. Give us the courage to walk in faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name, amen.